This morning I wanted to share a little bit about the theme from this past week's camp. And uh, I believe the title of our camp this week was Living the Adventure of God's Love. And you heard in the medley that uh, our campers just sang to us that, that the love of God is, is big, it's expansive. There are all these dimensions to who God is and how he loves us. And I want to press into that a little bit today. In the late 1950s, there was a talented young jazz musician named John Coltrane. And John Coltrane just about destroyed himself as a person and as a musician before he really got started. Because by the mid-1950s, he was deep in a pit of addictions. He was addicted to alcohol. He was a heroin user. And he says that the fact that he merely even survived those years was a miracle. It's a miracle that he would later credit to an unexpected rescue. An unexpected love that came into his life. A few years after a dramatic recovery in the 1960s, Coltrane would later sit down in a studio in New Jersey with his quartet, and he recorded what is now widely considered one of the most important jazz albums of that century. And the album was meant to express the kind of transformation he had just experienced, both personally and as a musician and spiritually. And in three tracks that run just over 30 minutes of music, there are only three words that are spoken in that album. The words are, a love supreme. A love supreme. And at one point, that that phrase is sort of chanted in the background. For the rest of, of the duration of those 30 minutes, Coltrane's saxophone explodes with what Rolling Stone at the time called a legendary hymn of praise. I want to share with you just about 20 or 30 seconds. If you, if you look at the liner notes, Coltrane expresses to whom this, this praise is directed, this great love. And he writes in the liner notes, glory to God. God is so alive. God is. God loves. May I be acceptable in his sight. He actually had written out an entire sort of psalm of praise there. But when it came time to to share it, he decided to play it musically through his saxophone. The the words, he says, he expressed in music rather than in in verbal form. There are times where where our language seems strained, right, to express things that are deep within us, things that are, are vital to who we are. And so we turn to things like music or images or relationships or stories to help us understand. This past week, 
be together as a summer camp, we're experiencing this adventure of God's love. And together as about 90 campers and probably three or four dozen adults who volunteered during the week, we did our very best to capture what that supreme love of God looks like and and feels like. And we, we explore that in a variety of different places. Some of us went into the outdoors and were in the woods and on trails. Some were in the kitchen. Some were expressing themselves through the creative arts and dancing and drawing and singing. But again, the whole focus of this was to better understand, to enter into the love God has for us. And at uh, the beginning and end of each th- of, of those days at camp, we also came back to the invitation of Scripture, of God's Word to us and for us. And we found in the words of Scripture that we are loved far more deeply, far more faithfully than most of us dare to imagine. This morning I want to look into the Word of God here together again. And I want to look this morning at uh, another song or a psalm that is also dedicated to this supreme, all-encompassing love of our God. And it's a song that was written by a man named David. David was uh, a person who lived in ancient Israel. He started his life as a simple shepherd boy, but he had this incredible, not only sort of knack for for poetry and expression, but also leadership. And he became a mighty warrior in Israel. He would eventually become what's now regarded as as the greatest king of Israel in that era. But in the middle of all David's successes, he also experienced a, a number of struggles. David stumbled his way through seasons of depression through lust, through betrayal, through great hubris and pride, also through his own anger. David was far from a a paragon of virtue. Yet the Bible tells us that, that David was unwavering in one single conviction. Despite all of David's successes, despite all of David's failures, David knew deeply that he was loved. In fact, David's name in Hebrew means one who is beloved by God. And this was part of his core identity. And this morning, as we look at one of David's psalms of praise, Psalm 103, I want to invite you to consider what it would be like to know, to believe, to have the kind of conviction David does, that you are deeply loved by the God who created you. Let me invite you to turn with me to Psalm 103 this morning. Let me pray for us as we open God's word together. Lord, the word love strains to express, strains to capture who you are, the way that you see us, the way that you care for us, the way that you restore us and pick us up. Lord, I pray this morning, as I teach, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations 
and things we feel most deeply in our hearts and spirits. May all those things be pleasing in your sight. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Psalm 103. Let me read the first six verses to begin. Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your sins. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. Who satisfies your desires with good things. So that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. If you notice in the first two verses of this psalm, David addresses or directs his words, not necessarily to us as an audience or or as his readers, but he's speaking first and foremost to his own soul. He addresses the inmost part of who he is. And he's inviting that part to be, to, to, to wake up, to, to, to experience the praise of his God. I don't know about you, but when my alarm goes off early in the morning, especially in those long Vermont winter mornings that we're about to head into in a few months, I'm not, I'm not always full of joy, full of praise, or, or full of excitement about the day that lies ahead. Sometimes I just want to sort of pull the covers back over my head and hide from what's coming. But one of the things that I've learned over time to do on those mornings is to get out of bed and to find my way into some quiet corner of the house where I can either sit or even kneel. And as the, the morning coffee is starting to brew, to start my way in the same way, to start my day in the same way David does here. By awakening my inmost being, awakening my soul with praise. By waking up to who God is. And sometimes that that takes a kind of rehearsal for us. And a key phrase that David expresses in these first six verses is the word all. Notice how David encourages his soul to remember all of God's benefits. He says, God forgives all of our sins. He heals all of our diseases. He works justice for all the oppressed. The thing that David begins with is this idea that God's love is expansive. It's comprehensive. God's love does not leave out any person. God's love does not leave out any aspect of of who we are as people. God's love is big, David says. The second thing... David notices is that God's love has this habit of reversing things. Look especially at verses 3 through 6. David says that where there is sin, God forgives. Right? He, he turns that around. Where there is disease, God often has the power to heal and to change that. Those who are hungry, God desires to satisfy. Those who are oppressed... God desires to bring justice to. So God, in his love, is a God of reversal. 
And this is something our soul can look to, our soul can rest in, our soul can wake up to, David says. But my favorite image of reversal comes in verse 4, where David says, He redeems your life from the pit, and he crowns you with chesed, is the Hebrew word. Chesed is a word that appears more than 250 times in the Bible. And yet, translators struggle to to define it or to translate it with one single English word. Sometimes Bibles use the word love, or God's kindness, or God's loving kindness, or God's unfailing love, or his steadfast love, or his devotion to his people. And here David says in verse 4 that God scours the earth. He looks into the pits, into the broken down places of our existence in order to find those he might lift up into his love. Sometimes I think we forget that this is a place where God hangs out. Right? That God is present not just in church pews, but God is incredibly present in pits as well. Right? Be they a pit of addiction, a pit of, of grief and despair of anxiety, of hurt, of anger, of confusion. David writes in many of his psalms about this idea of being mired, of of being weighed down, of being stuck in these, these broken places, and yet he finds God's love even there. And as he continues his psalm, he wants to give us further images and ideas as to what it's like to encounter God in that place. What it is to know the deep love of his God. Look at verses 7 through 13. He says, He has made his ways known to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger. He abounds in love. He will not always accuse. He will not harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions, our sins from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. I think most of us carry around some general impression, some general picture of what we think God is like, right? what his character is like. And, and the image we have of, of who God is then deeply informs how we believe God sees us, right, what he makes of our lives. And if you're a human being, if you're someone like me, you you may notice that you can be a a pretty temperamental person. You can be impatient. You can be self-interested. What David here describes as, as a person who wrestles with sin and transgression and iniquity. And so because of this, I have spent a lot of my life kind of 
moving through life with this sneaking suspicion that if God truly knows what I'm like, then he's probably disappointed in some respect. Right? I carry around this, this weight of guilt that's hard to shake. It's hard to, to know where to put it. And maybe that's something you carry with you as well. We may, even, even when we know or believe that God is there, we may think he is angry or upset with us. And we're, we're reticent to, to want to go near him, to be in relationship with him. And I think this is something David intuitively knows. It's something David knew through his experience over many years of his own lifetime. But after struggling and wrestling with these things in God's presence, he comes to a very different conclusion, a very different image of what God is actually like. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says that God desires to be in relationship with us. He desires us to be his people, not so that he can tally up our setbacks, but in order that he might overcome them, might overcome our guilt, might overcome our shame with who he is, with his heart of compassion and grace. And as verses 10 and 11 go on to explain, our God is one who has a renewing a restoring kind of love. One that doesn't repay us according to our failures, according to our sins. But David says, that love is informed instead by his character. His gracious, slow to anger, abounding kind of love. A love that seeks to to rekindle and renew our love for him. Because David is, is, is a poet, he turns to his sort of poetic genius here to help us understand what that love looks like. And he imagines looking out onto the horizon for him. And he says, if you stand before the horizon, imagine that space from, from where you stand all the way up to the heavens, as vast as that space is. Even greater is the love God has for you. More expansive than the sky above our heads. And he says, not only does God's love fill the expanse from from heaven to earth, but he says, because God desires to know us and to be with us and to transform us, he's also committed to removing our transgressions, removing our failures, removing our shame. David says, as far as the east is from the west. God mercifully evacuates that space of anything that would accuse us before him. Our infidelity, our our anger, our fear, whatever it is that, that burdens us, God evacuates those things and he fills up that space instead with his loving kindness. So that like David, when we wake up in the morning, we might praise him with our inmost being. We might know of his care for us. I think typically my own problem is not being convinced that I'm broken, convinced that I fail, convinced that I sin against God. Typically my greater problem comes in believing that mercy is actually available. And believing that the love of God is actually bigger than all this stuff I carry around with me. 
But in verse 13, David wants us to imagine God as a father of compassion. A God who desires to know us, for us to be his children. So I want to give you one final image this morning of what this great love of God looks like as a father. It actually comes in a story that Jesus tells in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus tells us a story about a father who has two sons. This is in Luke 15. Jesus says, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so the father divided his property equally between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. He set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. Jesus imagines this family with two brothers, and the younger brother in this family essentially asks his father for a massive loan. He wants his inheritance, and he wants it now, before the father dies. And as soon as the father gives him what he wants, he curses his family, and he goes to a far-off place. We don't know where. And there he proceeds to go on a kind of self-indulgent, self-destructive spending binge. And all the while, we have the older brother who stays home. Right, who does as the father asks him. He says and does all the right things. And by comparison, he makes his younger brother look even more ungrateful. And I think part of the, the reason Jesus tells this story is, is to ask us the question, well, which of these sons does the father love? As the story goes on, we find out that the younger son, when he is far from home, eventually runs out of money, and he finds himself sleeping in, in a field of pigs. And he is desperate, he is hungry, he is looking just for his next meal. And he is at the bottom of a pit that he has dug for himself. And it's in that place, we're told, that the younger son begins to remember his home. And he remembers his father. And he thinks to himself, if I could just get home somehow, if I could show up there, maybe I could be hired back into my father's house as a servant, as as a day laborer. Maybe there at least I could find something to feed this great hunger that I have now. And so Jesus says this son gets up out of his pit, and he begins to walk toward home. And as he's walking home, he is rehearsing to himself a kind of speech that he's preparing. He's he's imagining when he gets home, how is he going to, to manage his father's disappointment, his father's anger, his father's rage? What's he going to say by way of explanation to his father? And this, this is the speech he's prepared. He's going to say, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Right, just make me a hired hand. Make me a slave in your household. 
And as all this is going on, he's getting closer and closer to home. And as he is nearing the village, maybe a, a half mile outside the village, he suddenly sees there is someone coming toward him on the path. And then he realizes that that person is not walking toward him. That person is running toward him. And as the person finally comes into view, he discovers it is his father. And Jesus says that the father literally falls upon the neck of his son. He nearly knocks him over and he embraces him and he begins to kiss his son. And this is, this is not customary for a father in the ancient world. It would be out of place for a father even today to show this kind of affection. And we're told that the son is so stunned, so amazed, he doesn't even know what to say. But, but in his, his rehearsal and the things that he's prepared, he starts into this speech. And he begins to say to his father, Father, I've sinned against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father stops him. And the father interrupts him. And the father will not let him continue in this way. And instead, the father turns to his servants behind him and he orders a feast to begin. We're told that that same afternoon, hours later, the son is dressed in his father's robe. The son is wearing his father's sandals. The son is seated at his father's table in a place of honor. And he hears these words from his father. It says, Today we had to celebrate. For a son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but now is found. Jesus says, this is the kind of father we have. This is the kind of love God possesses. A God who desires us to know him, to return to him, to feel his embrace, to be clothed by him sit at his right hand. My prayer for you today is that you may hear those words. You may know that supreme love of our God. You may know and experience the embrace of a God who loves you, whose love is higher than than the heavens are above the earth, and has done all that he can to to drive away anything that would separate you from that love. Let me pray for us today. Lord, you tell us that at the end of all things, it will be your love that endures, your love that remains, your commitment to us to overcome our fears and failings, sins and acts of rebellion and shame and hiding. You pursue us with love. Lord, may we be found in you today. Amen.